What's up everyone? Before we get things started today, I wanted to let you know that Into the Fray is back. That's right, Ironclad's flagship series that shows you behind the scenes of how we do what we do is here to stay. Check out a sneak peek here. We are done with the first scene, which was the cell block scene. And now we're gonna do the scene where two guards transport James Reese. When I look at any project, I always try to envision how it will be in its final state, but I also try to think about who I'm working with in the crew. Uh, the good news is, is the crew for this is all an ironclad team and we're so well oiled. This was one of those ones that we really just had fun as a group with. How can I help? How can I be useful in ending needless suffering? Do not be afraid of work that has no end. We have to organize a social movement. We have an opportunity to lead by example versus just talking, hot air. I think the more people in this fight, the more we grow. Eventually you could change. You know, the people are the ones that can make the change. Good morning, everybody. How many of you have heard of kleptocracy? And if you're anything like me, you probably haven't. And I knew nothing about it until I had this conversation with my guest today, Deborah LaPrevote. Kleptocracy is a major problem in the developing world with massive amounts of money intended for food, medical programs, education, and public resources being stolen by corrupt leaders. Bribes and corruption have led to billions of dollars vanishing from developing countries. And our guest today, Deborah, knows a lot about this issue. She is a retired FBI supervisory special agent on the International Corruption Unit at FBI headquarters. She helped to start the FBI's kleptocracy program and seized more than $1 billion from foreign corrupt officials. She's also a forensic scientist and spent several years at the FBI's evidence response team unit at the FBI lab. And prior to her FBI career, Deborah worked for the Department of Defense. At the time this interview was recorded, Deborah LaPrevote was the senior investigator for The Century. The Century seeks to disrupt and ultimately dismantle the network of perpetrators, facilitators, and enablers who fund and profit from Africa's deadliest conflicts. Today, her work is also featured on the new podcast series, The Nation for Thieves. How did you end up at the International Corruption Unit? Uh, it was interesting. Um, when I arrived, uh, the FBI tried to get me closer to my daughter. And so they moved me to Washington Field Office. And I was born in D.C. So, I mean, my mom was Air Force civilian. Um, and so I get to Washington Field Office. And um, I, I think I was assigned to an espionage squad for two days. And the, that supervisor said, oh, we're starting a terrorism special ops group. I need to give up an agent and I don't know you. Goodbye. I'm like, okay, don't unpack your box. Okay. So now I am on a uh, terrorism SOG, special operations uh, squad. And excellent training, right? Uh, I go back down to Quantico. I'm, uh, uh, I was trained by a former British uh, special forces uh, SAS guy. And he was like, Deb. It's a come-as-you-are war. If you jump out of the car and you don't have it with you, you don't have it with you, right? Right. So when you get out of the car, you've got to have your gun. You've got to have ammo. You've got to have communication. <laughs> and I'm like, 
I work in Northwest DC. I'm not being stripped by the IRA for a tracking device, <laughs> but I did learn how to be in my car and see an assailant walking towards me, then bring my hand in under my seatbelt, release my seatbelt, grab my weapon, draw up, eliminate any obvious threats, uh, grab my MP5 and bail out the other side of the car using the engine block as a, a you know, a deterrent. And so, I mean, I received excellent training and for the next two years, uh, I worked uh, mostly surveillance on um, people who had a nexus to terrorism. And uh, after two years, I said, I would like to do something else. I, you know, I sit in a car eight hours a day surveilling people. You have the eye? I don't have the eye. I thought you had the eye. Uh, you know, and we, uh, there was an opening on a squad that did money laundering and asset recovery. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'll give that a try. And so um, I, I go over to that squad and I, I, they send me to complex financial manipulation class and a couple other uh, things on money laundering. And I started getting cases. Uh, a lot, my first cases were, you're the case agent and say you're a drug case. Well, you're busy doing undercover buys, surveilling the bad guy. Well, I will come in behind you and I find out where does he drive? Where does he live? Where does he bank? And on the day you're going to arrest him, I'm stealing, I mean, I'm seizing his Lincoln Navigator or his Cadillac Escalade and his bank account and maybe putting a lien on, uh, you know, it, anything he derived from his uh, drug traffic. And then in 2003, I get my first case. They're like, hey, Debbie, uh, FBI San Francisco is prosecuting Pavel Lazarenko, the former prime minister of the Ukraine. They only put a $40 million judgment in their criminal indictment would you go after the other 300 million he allegedly took? And I laugh, I'm like, yeah, that's bigger than all my other cases put together. Okay, yeah. So um, for the next so many years, I mean, decades or more, um, I that was my first kleptocracy or international corruption case. So it took me several years, flew to Ukraine, flew to Switzerland, Liechtenstein, uh, Antigua, every place uh, he had moved money, uh, followed the trail, uh, and I ended up, seizing $258 million uh, of the $300 million that uh, we alleged that he had taken. Um, since, honestly, honestly, I would never want you to describe the exact mechanism of how you do that, but is it truly a matter, especially in a digital era, of backtracking and just following the ones and zeros and figuring out how they are connected? I mean, how does somebody, I feel like I would have a hard time hiding $100 how does somebody hide hundreds of millions of dollars? You know, it's interesting because what they do is, uh, and I, I tell people this all the time, when you when you seize a billion dollars from a country, you buy big stuff. You buy a yacht, you buy a mansion, you buy this. You seize a hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand, you fly under the radar. You buy stuff nobody's looking at. But um, when I left the FBI in 2015, I had 10 cases on my desk where I was looking at people who had stolen more than a billion one to five billion dollars right each each yeah yeah each oh, wow. so um you know first thing i do is i look where do you live and, and lazarenko just happened to live in california he had bought a mansion in san francisco and um the fbi in san francisco arrested him and so i worked very closely with the criminal investigator in that was going to prosecute Lazarenko for moving uh, ITSP, Interstate Transportation of Stolen Property, 
money stolen from Ukraine brought into the United States, right? Money laundering and the other things. He was indicted originally on a 54, 59 count indictment and um, was eventually found guilty. I think 20, the judge threw out some because it's a liberal California court, but he was found guilty, served nine years in prison, and then he sought asylum and he's still living in California um, because he said if we sent him back to Ukraine, he'd be murdered. Yeah, almost because he stole from his own country. That's so weird. And uh, yeah, I'm not happy that we provided safe haven for him, uh, but not not above my pay grade, I guess. Um, but yeah, I look at where do they live? What do they buy? Um, I want to know who's your mistress? Where does she live? Are you paying for her place? Um, I find out where you vacation. Uh, if you stayed at the Ritz in Morocco, you paid with a credit card. Then I get, so I, I find out how you paid. Then I find out how did you pay for the credit card? That identifies a bank account. How is that bank account fed, right? And so I, for for me to seize that, I have to trace it back to criminal conduct. So it's not just enough that you, you're you a bad guy and you have bad money. I have to show there's a direct nexus from the money you stole to the money I'm seizing. And um, that takes interviewing people, talking to the law enforcement in, the, in that country. Um, that's why I'm traveling everywhere, to either get my hands on records or to interview witnesses that uh, were extorted by him. And um, yeah, that was my first case. And then I had some smaller corruption cases when I got a call in 2006 uh, to go after the $5 billion that was stolen by President Sani Abacha out of Nigeria. And uh, he was uh, president for only a couple of years, like four or five years, he died um, under unique circumstances. Uh, three Indian prostitutes uh, were involved, but he died. Uh, and uh, he is alleged to have taken $5 billion out of the country uh, while he was president. And so a lot of that money was found by the Swiss because it was in Swiss bank accounts. Um, so I ended up locating $630 million that had not already been identified. And um, we're we're returning that now to, I mean, uh, in 2020, we returned 311 million. Last year, another 20 million of that. And there's 150 million that's still being litigated. So, $5 billion. Right. So $5,000 million. Yeah. How many people, how many people have to be witting to allow that to happen? Or is this a guy who is the president of the country who is on his Bank of America account? I realize, of course, that it's probably not a Bank of America account, but it's an example that I can think off the top of my head, just transferring money. I feel like they can't be the only person knowing that this has happened. Or, or are they? Are they just doing it in plain sight, just siphoning money off? Like, how do they actually do this? Well, they always have an inner circle, right? So um, one of the ways that Abacha got, I think it was like $2.63 billion, uh, it was called the security vote scheme. But what he would do is he would say, uh, write a letter. I need $14 million to buy bulletproof vests for my police department. And he would give that to his head of security who would go to the central bank. The central bank would literally give them a box with $14 million, several boxes with $14 million in it. And um, he would take it back. And in that way, they uh, siphoned $2.63 billion um, out of the state coffers. And um, Mohammed Abacha, the son of President Abacha, was interviewed once. And they said, Mr. Abacha, 
when your father handed you boxes worth with seven hundred million dollars in them, did you ask him, like, where did it come from? And he goes, it it never crossed my mind. And um, so, I mean, that was bad case. There's Malaysia when the one MDB case, the Malaysia Benevolent Fund, five billion dollars, four point eight billion was stolen out of Malaysia, and it funded. Part of that money funded uh, the Wolf of Wall Street in uh, California with Leonardo DiCaprio. He had no idea what the source of the money was. Um, but it the actual production of the movie itself? Yeah. So the money, uh, Mr. Razak, who was, who was the prime minister, his nephew owned Red Granite Productions in California. And it, it it's funny, everybody says, oh my God, it, it funded the Wolf of Wall Street. I said, well, it also funded Dumb and Dumber 2, but you don't hear about that one, right? Yeah. But, oh yeah, um, they're still applying. I think thus far the FBI has recovered $1.8 of that money. And um, they have, they're still tracking it now. Um, Gaddafi, $50 billion while he was president of Libya. Um yeah, I mean, Moldova lost a billion dollars in three days, and they're missing several billion. I was just in Tunisia, and I think Tunisia's missing 11 billion. Um, Lebanon is like 11 to 20 billion. So it's uh, the amount of greed is absurd. And But I will tell you from the perspective of somebody who traces money, it's hard to move that money like bulk cash smuggling or without uh, some type of uh, paper trail. And yeah, so, does the digital era make your job easier? No, really, uh, not really, because we still have like records from another country have to be requested through a mutual legal assistance request. So, uh, in, in some ways, but like uh, it's funny, people ask me digital currencies is you know are people uh using digital currencies to launder money well yeah people are but look at kleptocrats the corrupt leaders of the world they're all over 50 right yeah, so bitcoin right yeah you know i was in ukraine and they're like we hunt we peck we type with two fingers you know and we like portable assets we want gold we want silver we want diamonds right and um so when the when President Yanukovych fled Ukraine in 2014, um, they said, you know, Deb, we need boots on the ground. I'm like, you need my boots on the ground? Okay, next thing I know, I'm in Kyiv. And I'm at the mansion, Mezogoria, and you just see the squandering of wealth, right? There's a Spanish galleon in the lake behind the house. Um, from a forensic scientist standpoint, it was interesting because they had thrown all these documents in the lake behind the house. So there were dive teams in the lake pulling things out i said you guys there's a sauna in the house let's put the documents in the sauna so that we can dry them out and read them and uh we brought a forensic team in uh from the fbi lab and you know they, they had a zoo and i'm like is anybody feeding the animals i called PETA, <laughs> you know and like everybody took off who's who was feeding the ostrich over here and um but he took 40 billion dollars out of the not him personally but he drained the economy of $40 billion, which left the country wide open for Russia to invade in 2014 and to annex Crimea. I mean, I said, I, I consider it the financial rape of a country. And, you know, he's now living a life in Russia. 
And but I show up in Kiev and I'm like, hi, I'm Debbie Lapabottom with the FBI. And they're like, we're being invaded. Could you could you come back? <laughs> I'm like, yes, I'm aware. That's why I'm here. I'm here to help. And um, is you know, we spent the next several years uh, trying to trace money that had been stolen under Yanukovych. And then President Poroshenko came into Ukraine and another five billion left under him because he was another ally of Putin. And uh, Zelensky is there now. And, and, you know, recently I've become very popular because I seize assets, right? And everybody wants their money back. And so uh, when the U.S. started seizing the yachts of the uh, Russian oligarchs, everybody's calling me. They're like, Debbie, you know, what can we do with these yachts? And I'm like, well, first of all, you know, there's got to be a premise. Like, why are we seizing the yachts? We're seizing the yachts because the individuals whose yachts we seized are violating sanctions. There is a asset seizure component of that. But I said, you want to get money back to Ukraine? Uh, $40 billion left under Yanukovych, $5 billion left under Poroshenko. Find some of that, and it's Ukraine's money. You can give it back. Uh, all of the state-owned enterprises in Ukraine that got taken over by Russia, those all the money they've generated from that could easily constitute theft of government assets. Find where they're banking. When they when they take money out of the Black Sea, where does that money go? Find it, seize it, and give it back to Ukraine to rebuild. So um, there's almost always a paper trail, and that's when myself and and others uh, who work this kind of work, you know, there's something to follow. Ladies and gentlemen, today's episode of Change Agents is brought to you by Ketone IQ. You may be asking yourself, what is Ketone IQ? Well, the answer is that it's brain fuel. It is a clean energy boost without the sugar or caffeine. When should you use it? Well, the answer to that is kind of anytime that you want to re-energize. I use it in the morning before I sit down to have a podcast episode. And what I'll tell you is it provides me the energy and clarity that caffeine does, a coffee per se, but it lasts a lot longer. And I don't feel, it's not that I feel a crash with caffeine, but I don't feel the let off like I do with caffeine. It lasts a lot longer. It's a very sustained energy state. It gives me very good clarity of focus. Um, and a lot of things that come with that, better memory, better word recall, all the things that I'm trying to do when I'm hosting a podcast episode. Cool thing about Ketone IQ is you can find it a couple places. One, if you live in a place that has a grocery chain called Sprouts, you can find that nationwide. Um, or you can find Ketone IQ at HVMN.com. I'm going to say that one more time. HotelVictorMikeNovember.com. If you visit HVMN.com and you use the promo code Andy at checkout, you're going to save 20%. Again, that is HVMN.com. Promo code Andy to get yourself a clean energy boost without sugar or caffeine. So you used a term that I hadn't heard until very recently, and it's kleptocracy. And I'm hoping that you can unpack that a little bit, because I don't think it's a very widely used term or understood. Absolutely. I laugh because I worked kleptocracy before it was called kleptocracy, right? It was just okay, corruption. Well, just corruption? Okay. Yeah. International <laughs> corruption, maybe. But... <laughs> If you, if you break it down, klepto, you know, uh, it's like to seize with compulsion. And I go, yes, they just can't help themselves. But a kleptocrat is a, is a leader 
who puts their own self-enrichment over the wellness of their populace. And so, you know, it's it's the Putins of the world. It is uh, Obiang out of Equatorial Guinea. It was Abacha out of Nigeria. Uh, I mean, and the list just goes on. Uh, Assad in Syria. So, I mean, uh, yeah. As you're saying that, I'm, I mean, <clears throat> I try not to follow politics too much, but that term could almost be applied to members of our own government and their actions uh, in office as opposed to serving those that put them into office. I don't want to deep dive down a rabbit hole, but yeah, it'd be interesting if that lens was swung towards some of the behavior of our own politicians in our own country, probably at a smaller scale, but the intent to go in that direction of self-serving versus those that they are supposed to serve. Be curious to see how that would net out. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, I'm a conservative, so I always look at two things. One, I love term limits. I would love term limits. Um, I would not agree with you more. Yeah, I had to retire at age 52. Uh, I mean, sorry, 57 is the mandatory retirement age for FBI agents. <laughs> and I'm like, how many people are over 80 in Congress and the Senate, right? It's like, hmm, or a career. Or what's worse is that you serve two years, I mean, two terms, eight years, and you get an income for life. Um, you know, if they would take it back to its original meaning of government service, uh, where no, you come in, you serve for four or eight years, and then you go have a wonderful career someplace else, but you don't start making 175000 a year for the rest of your life just because you worked for eight years as a congressman or a senator. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things we could do, but unfortunately, the people who vote on that are the people who profit from that, and therefore, um, we're at uh, a juxtaposition on that one. We certainly are. Yeah, it's... Uh... Let's go focus back globally. How big of a problem is kleptocracy globally? Because I tell you what, we're not going to solve any of the problems right now uh, in our own country, because I agree, we're kind of at a standoff. The people who are going to make the changes are the ones that are have worked their way into power, so it becomes problematic. But globally, going back to these individuals, how big of an issue? Trillions, trillions of dollars globally, illicitly moved. And it, boy, it, it affects us in every country that provides aid. Right. Um, I work for the century now. Like I do have the best retirement job. So, I, I mean, I had to retire from the FBI soon. I was 55 when I retired from the bureau and I would have had to retire in two more years. So I had the opportunity to work for George Clooney and John Pendergast um, and allowed they allowed me to just keep being an investigator. Right. So uh, which is what I wanted to do. And so I work primarily South Sudan. But if you look at South Sudan, it's uh, it was deemed the most corrupt country in the world for the last two years by Transparency International's Perceived Corruption Index. Um, they got bumped, I think, by Syria this year. Um, but if you look at the countries down at the bottom, of the top 10 most corrupt countries, it's Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, South Sudan, um, Afghanistan. You know, they're all places that are in turmoil because all of the money, it goes into the pockets of those people that run the country then they fund the military because that keeps them in power. But what suffers, education, health care, uh, and just the civilian populations, uh, there's constant civil war in South Sudan. Uh, 400,000 people have died uh, in the last decade in South Sudan because of civil war. Um, I did an investigation on profiting from rape. Uh, the uh, the financial motivations behind the five-fold increase in rape and gang rape by the army in South Sudan. 
And, um, you know, everybody knows that rape is a tool of war. It happens everywhere. But I thought, there's been a fivefold increase. What's behind that? And so I started looking and I found like five revenue streams. So one of them is rape is reward. Um, the UN panel of experts in 2016 said the army in South Sudan is allowed to rape women in lieu of pay. So in other words, we haven't paid you in six months. So do what you want to take what you can was what the, the general orders were. And um, so they could rape with impunity. And rape camps were set up where women were abducted and held for months uh, with men 10 in queue at night as, again, reward for fighting. Women abducted and gifted as soldier brides. But also one of the things I did is I, I did an overlay. I did GPS coordinates for all the allegations, thousands of allegations of rape by the army. And I overlaid that on a map of resources. And sure enough, I mean, the army is guarding the oil fields because they're 90% of the revenue generated for South Sudan. So they are there. There's a lot of rape associated with the soldiers that are guarding the oil fields, but also gold mining and teak. And there's a direct correlation between the natural resources being protected because they're funding the government um, and then, and where women are being attacked. Uh, but also we look at gold smuggling and we look at um, state capture. So if you're the president of South Sudan, uh, I mapped out five individuals, the president, his brother-in-law, the uh, two former chiefs of staff, and another high-ranking general. And those five men had family members on 175 companies. And they were in mining, trade, uh, media, banking, and so, I mean, it's state capture where uh, the political elites and their family members have a very big footprint in the uh, lucrative industries. Uh, the centuries reported on this, but uh, President Kira's 20-year-old daughter, Winnie, uh, was a shareholder with three Chinese nationals on a mining company that was getting mining contracts. And I thought, well, what does Winnie bring to the table? Well, her dad's the president. That's what she brings to the table. She has no background in mining. And so we uh, we investigate things like that where I map out the family structure of individuals, find out what how they're profiting. And I mean, it's a never-ending process. But what you look at is the civilian population. I mean, for all of the U.S. soldiers who fought in Afghanistan, Karzai, very uh, corrupt. And you know, his brother was a heroin trafficker. I mean, I knew from talking to the DEA guys. And, um, but I mean, look at the problems in Syria, look at the problems in Yemen, look at the problems in Eritrea, look at the, yeah, and, you know, where there's tremendous wealth that has been diverted into the pockets of the political elite, civilians are starving, they face food insecurity. 85% of women and 75% of men in South Sudan are illiterate because no money gets funneled into education. Well, it sounds like there, you know, there's the figurehead who I'd be fascinated to uh, understand at a deeper level how they came to power in the first place, and then they're strongholding all the industries, like you said, with family members spread across 175 behind the scenes. Yeah, they're literally strangling the the arteries of that country and directing it towards themselves. I mean, how could they have anything but that level of poverty and lack of education? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, and. Um... One of the kleptocrats who has been in the media for the last few years is the son of the president of Equatorial Guinea. It's a very small country on the west coast of Africa. It's 
tremendously oil rich. And uh, I have to give it to the French. They uh, prosecuted him in absentia and found him guilty of money laundering. And they seized uh, like a $30 million mansion, a Lamborghini and his, his fleet of cars. You know, it's just the amount of money means they buy big things. And when they buy big things like a yacht, uh, an aircraft, uh, there's something to seize and try to get that money back. Uh, I'm testifying twice this year uh, in uh, my old FBI cases. There was a $58 million aircraft that was bought years ago with the proceeds of a shady oil deal out of Nigeria. And I traced the money to the aircraft uh, before I retired from the Bureau. And uh, I, I used to get a phone call every time it took off and landed. You know, Agent Laprobot, the aircraft has just landed in Gibraltar. I'm like, two in the morning, thank you. I wrote it down. I, uh, I was waiting for it to land someplace that would honor a U.S. seizure warrant. And after I retired in 2020, it landed in Canada. And Canada seized it for the government of Nigeria. And so I will be testifying to my tracing uh, of the money to that aircraft and my knowledge of how it came to be. And then I'm testing for, uh, testifying for the government of Bangladesh in December. Uh, yeah, there's, it, it was interesting. I, I testified in Bangladesh in 2011, and I believe I'm the only law enforcement officer who's ever testified in a Bangladesh court, but that was a unique experience, right? I mean, uh, uh, so where did the Sentry organization come from? Talk to me about this, the inception of this organization and what, what their mission statement is. Well, you know, uh, we're a group of investigators and policy people, because we hit it from several avenues, uh, who investigate greed that is causing conflict, right? Greed that's fueling war crimes, atrocities, and conflict. So, like, we don't look at Nigeria because, you know, they're not putting their army against their civilian population. So we work Sudan, South Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, Central African Republic, Libya, Azerbaijan, Myanmar, and who am I leaving now? <laughs> Better come to me. And um, yeah, Libya, Azerbaijan, Myanmar, and one other. And uh, so it started about 17 years ago when this genocide was happening in Defour, the cast of Ocean's Eleven. So it was Matt Damon, Brad Pitt, George Clooney, um, Don Cheadle. They got together and, and they started Not On Our Watch and the Enough Project. We've had enough trying to put an end to genocide. And for 10 years, they uh, worked really to try to affect U.S. policy to affect change in Africa. And um, after about a decade, they said, we're not having the success we want to have. I mean, like in changing things. And um, a friend of ours uh, that worked at the White House said, you have to follow the money. And so uh, the century was born from that, like, okay, we really need an investigative arm. And so uh, they hired myself and some other people from DOD, uh, former treasury people, so that we would know, because we speak the right language, right? We know who to talk to, we know how to get things done. And uh, we have wonderful investigators now from all over the world. And we started looking at our, you know, at four countries to start: Sudan, South Sudan, uh, Congo, and CAR. And, you know, we expose 
the political corruption. We expose the corruption and the looting of state coffers while we try to affect policy decisions, not only in the U.S., but the EU, the AU, Australia, Canada, and say, look, there are things that you can do to pro prohibit travel for these individuals. Uh, maybe their kids are going to college in in uh, New Jersey. Well, it is is the money that's paying for the college education criminally derived? Well, we don't want that. Um, and so we we put out reports that uh, expose high level political corruption and their dirty deals. And then we also push for policy uh, decisions that could impact and have a really positive impact on Africa and other places that we're working now. So you still have to rely upon state governments to some degree. You can provide them, you can basically do the legwork and provide for them the information, but it's actually on that state level government to action the information or do anything with it. Absolutely. And the reality is like law enforcement can't be everywhere, right? I mean, the, uh, the FBI has 14,000 agents at any one time active and we have, uh, agents just like dispersed all over the world in, uh, embassies. But they're not necessarily on the ground um, investigating. And so the world of NGOs like the Century and many others uh, and civil society, uh, investigative journalists, the OCCRP, the Organized Crime Corruption Reporting Project, investigative, uh, investigative journalists around the world, we pull all of that information together and we make it very public. And then the Century asks, in every one of our reports, we have policy like, okay, Treasury, this is what you could do. Okay, OFAC, you, this is who could be sanctioned, and here's the information to sanction them. Uh, we were very successful a few years ago. We found out that one of our South Sudanese generals had bought a $1.5 million home in Australia. And so I, I flew down to Australia. I, I conducted an investigation. I met with the diaspora community, the uh, South Sudanese living in Melbourne. And next thing I know, somebody goes, oh, you want to meet him? I had tea with the general in his living room. And um, they think they're not doing anything wrong. Um, but we pulled together all the information, like how the house was bought. It was bought in the name of his 24-year-old son who had a business that did no business. We collected that data and we handed it over to the Australian Federal Police. And unbeknownst to us, because they're not allowed to share, they opened an investigation. And a year later, I got a phone call. I said, hey, Dad, just want to let you know, we seized Hot Mai's house and his daughter's $35,000 Audi. And um, they were able to get bank records and the things that I wasn't able to get my hands on. And um, But his wife went on TV and said, you know, he fought in the bush for 20 years. He deserves this. And I'm like, well, how about all the people starving right now in South Sudan who fought in the bush too, right? And, and they were in $1.5 million home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From an investigator standpoint, though, the good news was because it was a $1.5 million dollar home, I found the website that had the uh, virtual tour of the house. So before I'd ever gone in, I had already been in every room in the house virtually. Um, it, it's amazing what's available online. We were, that's how I was able to show that it was purchased in his son's name. His son had a business, an import-export business. I checked trade data. He hasn't imported or exported anything. And the address for the business was the house. So. I was able to collect and do some of the light work and hand that over to somebody who could do something with it. Are there some governments that are more willing to take action than others? Absolutely. I mean, the United States has been like 
a, a wonderful partner to our foreign countries, right? And we're in a very unique position. Most of the money that leaves corrupt countries leaves in U.S. dollars. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons China and Russia are trying so hard now to get around that and 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 literally hoard U.S. dollars so that they can clear transactions without hitting the U.S. financial correspondent banking situation, which gives me venue to go after those assets. Mm-hmm. Um, so the U.S. has you know recovered billions of dollars from Malaysia, Nigeria, all these uh, all these other countries, but. Um, in euro, like if the money moved in euros, I have no venue. So then you have to get, but France did a wonderful job on the Obiant case, uh, Germany, Canada, uh, there's several, the UK, uh, has seized assets. The UK just enabled a, uh, unexplained wealth orders. And so if you're somebody living in their country and you have millions of, un- you know, like, or like hundred million unexplained wealth. Uh, they could possibly seize it unless you can show that, no, 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 it's not unexplained. Here, let me explain it to you. But, you know, it's hard to show that on a general salary of maybe $60,000 a year in another country, you amassed a $100 million fortune. Yeah. Can you help me to explain? So the kleptocracy, it seems like, obviously, it's benefiting the people who are at the top who control the levers. Can you help me draw the breadcrumb trail into how that actually is destabilizing the country and the violence and problems that can come from that inside of those countries as well? Because some, I have a feeling people listen, it's like, well, okay, like, yeah, there's some people at the top who are becoming exceptionally wealthy. I want to make sure that people also understand what that means for the citizens of those countries and what that level of corruption does to their daily life as well. Yeah, I mean, I think Ukraine is a perfect example of that. Remember I said that uh, Yanukovych took up to $40 billion out of the economy, Poroshenko, another $5 billion. So when I arrived in 2014, the soldiers like had limited bullets for their guns, and they're lining up on the eastern border and being invaded by Russia. So, I mean, under Yanukovych, he severely weakened the military purposefully so that you that Putin could annex Crimea and invade. And then you had five more years of that under Poroshenko. And so you've got Zelensky now who's doing a good job and he didn't flee. He's stuck in place and is fighting for his country, but he's got a severely weakened military. Uh, South Sudan, which is where I work, is another example. Uh, 90% of their money uh, comes from oil revenue, but they keep borrowing money and it's stolen. So they have already pre-sold the oil that's coming out of the ground until at least 2027. Mm. I mean, so no money is going to edge. What money does go to is to the military. And like the security service that supposedly has 10,000 strong soldiers for security service. I mean, like they're, they're CIA, they're secret service. Um, but basically it's a you know private uh, police force for the president. And... Um, They've been accused of war crimes and atrocities, and uh, South, that's why South Sudan was deemed the most corrupt country in the world. You have 4 million people out of 11 million that are displaced in other countries, out, like in Uganda and um, in Congo and in, in border countries. You have 2 million displaced within the country, people that can't go home, and nothing's being made, right? Because you can't tenure fields. 
your cattle get raided your ca and cattle is wealth there your cattle gets raided gets stolen but if you're wealthy you will go in with armed cattle herders and displace the guy the people that live there so that your cattle can now graze on their lands and uh, so i mean it just disrupts the entire com uh, community but South Sudan has been in turmoil since at least in, when they fought for independence in 2011. And, and that's an example. But when, when there is no uh, free media, when there is no rule of law, when there are no prosecutions for corruption, when uh, your phone is being tapped by the police, when you can be detained without ever being charged. Um, I used to feel comfortable when I traveled to Nairobi. And then in 2017, two anti-corruption -activ uh, activists got picked up off the streets of Nairobi and within hours were secreted onto an aircraft and taken to the Blue House in Juba, which is where they, this, their security service there uh, tortures and interrogates people. And then they were murdered and thrown in the Nile. And for the next year and a half, no one knew they were dead. You know, uh, Amnesty International, other groups are fighting for their release. They were dead. They were found in the Nile. Their families didn't know if they were dead or alive. And so, like, now, do I feel comfortable in Nairobi? No. Um, you know, and so the so much of the problems around the world can all be linked back to corruption. Well, it seems like, too, if, you know, if you're living in that environment that you're describing, you're spending 0% of your time, energy, and effort looking upwards at corruption because you're just trying to survive or leave the country. So it actually, that connects the dots for me on how these people are able to steal so much money. Oh. I mean, what, what a better way to steal in plain sight than distracting your people with just literally trying to survive or flee the country that they're in. Again, not getting political, but look at our, look who's coming across our Southern border. And, yeah. and the, uh, you know, you look at the triangle, uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, Belize. I mean, the corruption is so great that people feel they have no opportunity. Um, Mubarak, when in Egypt, I mean, Arab Spring happened because people, young men in that country had no opportunity. And um, yeah. so we just, you know, $100 billion to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. You know, leaving off the table the, the discussion people have, should we do that? Should we reinvest it back in our own country? How do we make sure that a portion of that $100 billion, it doesn't go down the same path that previous leaders in Ukraine or, you know, anywhere in the world? When the U.S., I don't think a lot of people realize that the U.S. provides more aid globally than any other country on the face of the earth. How do we make sure that it's not absconded with by these people, these dictators that are in power? Well, it's interesting because I will tell you, when we, when the U.S. returns money that uh, the FBI has seized or DOJ has seized, um, we make, uh, we we say, look, you know, we, we want to return your money, but we can't continue to help you if it disappears again. I mean, then it's not worth the effort of the United States to continue to help our foreign partners if we return hundreds of millions of dollars only to have it disappear again. So I know with Nigeria, uh, the U.S. State Department sat down with President Buhari and his Ministry of Justice and said. Tell us what you want. Like, what do you want this money to do in your country? And he goes, I want three infrastructure projects. So uh, an agreement was made where that the money that we were returning went specifically to three projects that civil society and NGOs had to have full transparency to know how every dollar was spent, that the companies that would be subcontractors were vetted 
so that it wasn't you know the president's nephew that had this company. And so steps can be taken. Um, and and frequently, like I've always recommended to the State Department that they have a menu. <laughs> like really, it's like oh, is child infant mortality your problem? Okay, well. Doctors Without Borders will work in your country. We will give the money directly to Doctors Without Borders. It can only be spent in your country, and it's got to address your three, whether it's Ebola, whether it's infant mortality, whether it's COVID. But we know we've given it to for the benefit of your people to an organization that you say is a priority in your country. And so there are ways to safeguard. A lot of the aid that we're giving will be given in the in the form of food in the form so it's not like a check and yeah. and you know but yeah i mean i've seen aid all over the country all over the world where the rice comes in in these giant bags and the first truck that pulls up belongs to a general and he's loading you know the aid rice into the back to feed his group first and um and i've talked to aid groups that say yeah we know 60 percent of it's going to walk but 40 percent gets through and i'm like and you're happy with that ratio and um but you know they're not armed you know feed the children isn't armed uh unicef isn't armed so ha you know it's that's a, a unhappy truth yeah how do we get people in the u.s to pay attention to this because again knowing that we were going to talk i started looking into this i had not heard the term kleptocracy until very recently um you know the amount of aid that the u.s provides globally alone Know, the examples that you've given in Africa, in Ukraine, kind of globally, honestly, um, how do how do we get people in the U.S. interested in this, and then what can they do with that interest? Well, that people have asked me. A journalist once said, "How do I make somebody in Ohio care?" And it's I, a tough like, one, as we're talking yeah, about, right? about Ohio. Yeah, right, and and like. It, and it's not that they don't care. They they recognize that there is absolutely nothing, in, as an individual, they can do to stop the the rape of a woman in Congo. I mean, women in Congo used to be raped every eleven minutes, one every eleven minutes, a few years ago. Um, and, and so it, it's like this. It's like saying the pond here is poisoned. I'm I'm horrified by that, but I personally other than keeping you from drinking out of the well, I don't know what I can do about it. And that's one of the problems. But I can, I've, I've had people ask me about the aid we're giving to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And I said, what you need to realize is what happens if Ukraine falls to Russia? I said, there are other countries along the Black Sea that can be invaded by sea from Russia if Ukraine is now a Russian territory and part of Russia. And they said, well, no, 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 there's NATO. I said, yeah, but there's a couple countries there that aren't NATO. And and so, and so they certainly couldn't stand up to a, a Russian invasion. And so we have to look global. There are times where we have to think globally. Um, and I would just say it's short-sighted. There are some things where, yeah, maybe, you know, I, I'm never going to go to some of these places and I don't know how. But they affect world trade. Maybe grain. It may be grain from our farmers is feeding people in that country. So we need to know that. And um, maybe the fact that we're taking food from those areas that's coming into our country is, is an issue. But I think aid is one of the big things that people have to recognize. Um, when we provide aid, which we have to do often, 
our aid relieves them of their responsibility. I mean, relieves the kleptocrat. Like if you're going to feed the women and children in my country, I don't have to. But if we don't, they will starve. So, I mean, there's the dilemma. But I would say that at some level, you have to act locally, but you've got to care globally because we are sending aid there. American tax dollars are going there. American servicemen are going to these parts of the world. And maybe it's a UN peacekeeping mission. Maybe it's, and it's Americans who happen to work for Feed the Children for adoption centers. Um, there's, there's so much more global action going on and people may not recognize it. Uh, the investment of the banks, where's the money, you know, uh, UBS in New York is part of UBS Switzerland, right? I mean, so uh, HSBC, Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, based out of Hong Kong, uh, but one of the financial centers of the world. So it is still a difficult question to answer, but it's naive to to not recognize that corruption all over the world is impacting us. Uh, I can tell you, I arrested a vice president of Riggs Bank years ago. And Riggs Bank, one of the biggest and most important banks in Washington, D.C. back in the day, doesn't exist now. Why? Because it was laundering money for all the embassies in, in Washington, D.C. And so, uh, you know, corruption around the world closed down a Washington, D.C. bank. And uh, some of the banks that are failing now, uh, you know, have a large footprint in corrupt areas. It's really easy to get stuck in the headspace of thinking only locally and not globally. And the reality is we live in a global society. You know, I mean, I'm sitting in my podcast studio right now and I, I could probably point out items that are from five different continents. I don't think about that from a day-to-day level, but I'm thinking about it now based off the conversation that we're having, you know, the, the act locally and, and think globally. Um, if people do want to act locally and they want to find more out about the century, what you guys are doing, talk to me about where they can find more information and if they want to support, how can they support? Well, yes. I mean, we're an NGO, so we live off of donations. So yes, the century would very much welcome uh, donations, uh, go to thecentury.org, the S-E-N-T-R-O-I, thecentury.org. Um, you can Google like the Century and Clooney, it'll pop right up. And um, it, you can see our reports, the the kind of investigations that we do. And, you know, I, but I, what I would ask people to do is don't breeze by the international news because the, million, the billions of dollars we're sending to Ukraine right now. Well, that affects everybody. That's everybody's tax money going there. But w- I hope people understand the negative consequences if we don't help Ukraine. Um, but I remember when all of our American soldiers were in uh, Afghanistan and how corrupt the Afghan government has been. And uh, I worked with SIGR, the special OIG for uh, Iraqi reconstruction and for Afghan reconstruction. And the amount of corruption again, puts our soldiers at risk. And um, yeah, so on on so many fronts, the fight against corruption still comes home. The money moves through our U.S. financial systems. Uh, look at how many things in the United States are owned by Russian oligarchs. 
or Ukrainian uh, are mining operations out of West Virginia, some of them owned by Russian and Ukrainians. Um, China owns, uh, I can't tell you how many poultry producers, and uh, Smithfield uh, ham is now, I believe, owned by China. So a lot of uh, farming ground as well. Yes, uh, there is a big hunk of uh, farmland that is being bought by foreign nations. And that's really disturbing. We, you know, I, when I buy Smithfield and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm supporting China. Um, so, and and I could tell you that 80% of the people I talk to would have no idea who owns some of the, owns the farmlands, owns some of the mining operations, uh, the real estate market in the United States. When you're asking how does this impact us? When I left the FBI in 2015, there had been a 70% increase in the sale of uh, luxury homes in California to Chinese nationals. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, look at Venezuela and and the Miami real estate market, right? The head of PDVSA, uh, Rafael Ramirez, uh, used to fly into Miami, and he had diplomatic immunity. So who knows, who knows what he flew in with? But... Um, I know that uh, properties are being seized in Miami that are the proceeds of Venezuelan corruption. Uh, The FBI took down a baby ring. Uh, I think there's like 700 Chinese nationals in the last decade that have come in and had their offspring in the United States, making their children U.S. citizens, naturalized U.S. citizens, which allows them to bring mom and dad to the U.S. when they get older. And it is a, it's like baby tourism. The women come in at six months pregnant. They stay for three months in luxury accommodations and bear their children here. Uh, the FBI has taken a couple of those down, but that's just one example. And then I think the big example right now is the millions of people that have crossed our border in the last uh, three years. I mean, it's staggering. I ask everybody every day, I'm like, were there 3 million beds in the United States that weren't slept in last year? <laughs> like. Where are they going? Um, and if they're here illegally, they don't have social security numbers. Are they contributing to the tax base? Because they're certainly benefiting from the tax base. I live in Northern Virginia. I'm in line to vote. And I look at the elementary school poster on the wall and it says 27 languages are spoken in this elementary school. So what kind of challenge is that for the teachers that teach in these areas? And, and these are kids we assume are here legally. So, uh, you know, if you want to know how it's impacting you, my sister lives in Texas. She's like, you can't believe what it's like down here. And nobody seems to care. And yeah. so uh, I just, I have a real problem with like 125 people in the terrorism watch list coming across our southern border. I have a real problem with um, uh, not knowing who. If three million people invaded all at once, we'd consider ourselves being invaded. <laughs> and uh, because it's a few thousand a day or, um, you know, 20,000, it, it doesn't say that to me, that's an invasion of our country where we don't know who you are, why you're here. Some are asylum seekers. Uh, not all of them are. Some of the countries they're coming from, uh, it's not just uh, south of our border. And so uh, that, the amount of money that is going to have to house, feed, educate, and keep healthy people, that's every American taxpayer. So there's a reason, and, and a great deal of that is related to corruption south of the border, in every one of the countries that those people are fleeing. 
Yeah, it truly does bring the global issue back home. Uh, I, just, I recently had a Border Patrol agent uh, on my personal podcast, and we recorded uh, somebody who'd spent a lot of time as a Border Patrol agent for change agents. Um, and the term that they used was OTM, other than Mexican crossing the border. And the vast majority of people aren't actually not uh, Mexican. Yeah. They're, they're from the countries that you have mentioned, and they choose the southern border because the immigration laws in Canada are stiffer, and it's easier to work their way up through our southern, our southern border. But it's a perfect example of how it's a global issue and how that global issue can impact you locally if you choose to bury your head in the sand, and at least, uh, or if you choose not to make uh, educated decisions or to educate yourself about what's going on from a global perspective. Yeah, I mean, uh, I took an oath 27 years ago to protect the United States against all threats both foreign and domestic. And um, all of my Border Patrol uh, friends did the, took the same oath. And right now, I we're not being given the tools to protect the United States against threats both foreign and domestic. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. Debbie, thank you so much for your time. I'll let you close it out with whatever you would like to. Uh, just everybody be aware and understand that corruption is a never-ending, whether it's here in the United States or abroad, it's something that has to be brought to light. The best thing anybody can do is, if you, you know, I hate to say see something, say something, but uh, do that. Contact the Sentry, contact the FBI, uh, contact local law enforcement if you see something that's suspicious. But uh, everybody, what are they, uh, evil thrives when good men do nothing. So yep. do something. Perfect ending. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Have yeah. a great night. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to learn more about the work that The Century does, please visit their website at thecentury.org. Normal spelling on all of that. Deborah also recommends checking out anti-corruption NGOs and civil society organizations, including Global Witness, Transparency International, Global Finance Integrity, and Center for Advanced Defense Studies.